Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, and said, You too were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When he had gone out the gateway, another servant girl saw him, and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man, and immediately a rooster crowed. is your host, as always, Jonathan Coots, and I am delighted to bring to you another episode. Today, we are discussing the idea of mimesis and all of its different forms, because there is a couple of different ways to think about this and a couple of different ways in which it is used. Real quick, though, I want to tell you about two things. First, please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, it's extremely helpful, very beneficial, and it helps uh, promote the show and let more people see it. Also, if you follow me on any of the socials, go ahead and share the show. Uh, that way more people can see it there as well. That said, um, one other thing. If you guys are interested in starting a podcast of your own, go ahead and use Anchor.fm. Anchor is a Spotify product or platform, so it's very easy to upload episodes to Spotify, and it's even easier to start getting paid. You can just make ads about Anchor after you get uh, 50 viewers, uh, so that's not a whole lot. It's very easy to do. It's a very streamlined service because uh, you can record right on the platform, so you don't have to have any external um, recording items. You can record it right on there and upload the episodes, bada-bing, bada-boom. All right, let's get into the show. So, mimesis is um, a relatively old idea. It's a very old concept uh, dating back to the time of Socrates um, and Aristotle and Plato. Uh, those three people kind of contributed in their own ways to the idea of mimesis. Now, there are two separate ideas. Um, well, not mutually exclusive, though. Uh, so they are separate in some ways because they are trying to describe different things, but they are in a way interconnected because of the root word of mimesis, which is imitation or representation. Um, so it's used in different contexts, which we will delve to in a minute. So you have the idea of mimetic theory, and then you have mimetic desire. And while mimetic desire is also a theory, it is not necessarily the same. So mimesis itself is imitation, and it is originally used in a literary uh, form. It is not a plot device or anything like that. Um, it's a way to criticize literature or theater or anything that is artistic. And mimesis um, 
is the representation of ab uh, aspects of a sensible world, especially human actions in literature or art. That is a, a more formal definition of what it is. Now, it, it is a philosophy of art and its interpretation. Uh, the way that we interpret art is typically through a form of mimesis. This process by which people are able to relate to the art is what uh, it truly is. Um, example, you have to be able to feel what the characters are feeling. Um, when it comes to plays or when it comes to reading a book or watching a TV show or movie, the best the best job done is when you are also able to imitate the feelings that the the characters are feeling on the screen or in the play or in the book. That is when uh, art is at its finest, when it makes you feel something by representing in such a way reality and life. Um, and you are able to then take what they are feeling and then feel it yourself. Um, so it is the goal is to imitate the feelings of the characters. Now, there are two classes of thought on this, one by Plato and the other by Aristotle. Plato believed that mimesis was bad, that it was not a good thing because it is a copy of a copy. So um, he always used the idea of a bed. And so a poet can describe a bed in vivid detail, but it is not but a pale comparison to a real bed because this poet has no experience as a carpenter. So he doesn't actually know how the bed is constructed and all of the fine details of it. But then again, the carpenter who constructed the bed created a better copy than the poet did, but still an inferior copy to the most ideal version of a bed which we are all imitating. Um, that was one of Plato's core beliefs, is that there is an ideal version of everything, and we are but pale imitations of those things. So the version that the poet is describing, uh, that version of the bed, is but a pale imitation of the real, which is a pale imitation of the real, real one. So it's a third-hand copy, and therefore the most inferior of the group. So that's rather a pessimistic view of mimesis, but that is Plato's theory. Now, Aristotle redeemed the idea of mimesis because he said it is a good thing. This imitation is a really actually good thing, and it is art, and art is valuable in and of itself. But Aristotle um, believed that it is a good thing because the poet interjects himself some sorts of symbolism and which that symbolism creates a mystery and a value into the story that the viewer gets the pleasure of unfolding for themselves and it is a representation mimesis is and this art of human nature which is also valuable that we experience that and um because it adds the symbolism, it's it increases the pleasure that the people watching the play or reading the poem get. Because we have this ability to unfold this symbolism in there, which helps us represent nature in a way more true um, than just a representation. Another great example of mimesis is I can tell you 
or I can tell a person that I fell in love, but they don't really understand it until I describe to them the way that my heart pounds when I'm around this person and the fact that I have butterflies in my stomach. And when it's at that level, when I am describing the feelings, that is when they are able to understand it themselves. They are able to grasp what I'm saying and they can imitate the feelings themselves. And that's when they can actually understand what it feels like. That is artistic mimesis. That is this version of mimesis that is used in literature. Um, and it's an interesting idea because it, it also portrays the degradation of the artistic community and this these new forms of art that don't represent any part of human. They're just like scribbles on a page. They don't represent any portion of the human experience. Um, and that's why people don't connect with them at a real level, because uh, they don't actually symbolize anything, and they don't represent any portion of the human actions or a sensible world. They're just scribbles on a page, or one uh, specific one that I remember seeing at the Toledo Art Museum was literally, it was the chicken wire fence, it was about six foot high, seven foot high, and um, they had just attached hundreds of stuffed animals to this chicken wire fence so that you couldn't really see the, the fence. You could only just see this wall of stuffed animals. And I remember asking uh, how much it got bought for, and it was several million dollars. And I looked at my brother, and he looked at me, and we both said, we could do this. And that's how you know it's really sad, because if I am capable of producing a piece of art that's worth several million dollars, well, then something is wrong with whoever is buying that or the artistic community to value that at several million dollars. Um, and it's crazy because that artist was still alive. So he wasn't even like most artists and didn't get famous till after he died. He was still alive. So that stuffed animal wall doesn't really represent anything. It doesn't, there's nothing that represents the human nature in that thing of animals. So it's not really this form of mimetic art that actually has value because it symbolizes something greater. It symbolizes a greater uh, re revelation into human nature. Uh, and that is what artistic mimesis is. Now we have a different idea of mimesis, um, mimetic desire. Um, mimetic desire was uh, really produced by Rene Girard, and it is kind of... Um, connected to this other version of mimesis through mimesis. So, uh, brilliant, right? Um, mimesis, like I said, represents imitation. And mimetic desire is um, imitation that comes through wanting. Um, so you can think of the classic example of two toddlers playing in a room with dozens of toys, and there's a toy halfway in between two contented children playing. One of them decides, oh, I want that toy. And the other one, who was moments ago playing contentedly, also sees the fact that the other toddler also desires this toy. Therefore, he desires the toy now and wants it now. There's screaming and crying and name-calling uh, because one of them saw the toy and now the other one also wanted the toy. That is mimetic desire. The interesting part of mimetic desire is that it doesn't necessarily uh, apply to just two people at any given time. 
Um, it can apply to large social groups um, because of the pressure that they institute. If you guys can recall back to, I believe it was my fourth episode, um, social psychology, um, I talked mostly about the Milgram experiment, but I also talked about the Ash conformity experiment. And that is a pretty classic uh, when it comes to sociology or social psychology and even anthropology, which is what Rene Girard was. He was an anthropologist. And so to lay out really quick what happened is there would be five to ten um, people who are in the experiment. Okay, So they're not the uh, being experimented on. They are uh, working with the experimenter. And they're sitting at a table, seated at a table, not seated, uh, seated at a table, and they are looking at a screen that's got four lines on it. There is line A and then one, two, three, four. And there, uh, one, two, three, four are all different lengths, but one of the lines matches uh, line A. And so the, the sixth or the tenth person, or it doesn't really matter the number, but the last person comes in, and he is the one being experimented upon, and he comes and he sits at the edge of the table. And then they all go through, and they say the incorrect line. But they all say the same incorrect line. So they say uh, if three is the one that matches it, and one does not, all of the ten people before the experimenter, or all the people before the experimenter would say line one, line one, line one, so on. And then the last person uh, had to decide if he had somehow read the instructions wrong or had to think about, well, why is everybody else saying this one that is so obviously incorrect? Um, maybe I don't know what I'm doing or so on and all of these different justifications. And he would then usually one half to one third of the time um, say, or I'm sorry, one half to three quarters of the time would say the wrong one even though he knew they had reported afterwards, even though they knew that they were saying the wrong line, they would still do it. And that would be an example of mimetic desire. And that is, is not because he wants the line. It's not the same version as with the two children. I want this, so he wants this. It is the desire to be cohesive in this social group. He wants to imitate the functions of the group. He wants to be in the group, the popular group, the cool guys, the people who are saying this thing even though they know it's wrong. He wants to be cohesive with the social group. So it is a different form, but um, similar in principle. Um, it's also, my, uh, mimesis is also the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, there's that idea as well fits into this mimetic desire principle, um, that Renee had. Um, there's other aspects of it, such as scapegoating. Um, but real quick, I'm going to go through a story, um, that Rene Girard found extremely fascinating and extremely prevalent, and it is the story of Peter's denial. So I read to you the beginning of it. Um, actually, I read you the entirety of Peter's denial, but we're going to go through um, and look at what Rene Girard found so fascinating because he was raised Catholic but didn't really believe, and he formulated his ideas um, around literature. And he read all of these famous classics like uh, Don Quixote and Shakespeare and all of these people. And in all of those stories, and even Greek mythology, um, the character 
is usually spurred by some desire to imitate another person. So in Don Quixote, he sees this chivalrous knight, and it sets him off on his own journey to be like that knight. Um, so it's an imitation. And in the Bible, there's a, a deconstruction of this natural part of the human psyche which is to imitate someone you want to be like. But there's another part of it that he called scapegoating. And that is the enemy of my enemy is my friend part. That is the part where you're talking with a group of people and eventually we all decide that, well, we all dislike this person because she's a terrible gossip, even though you are also gossiping. Um, So that is another part of the creation of social cohesion is nobody gets together better than when you're like, oh yeah, we all hate that person. And you can see this at extreme levels uh, with what Hitler did in Nazi Germany. Um, he solved all of, solved, air quotes, all of the problems of Germany by scapegoating to the Jews. Um, you got to keep in mind that at this time, Germany was in some pretty bad spots. Um, their military was in shambles, their economy was crashing, um, they were looked upon as not good because of World War One. So Hitler came up and was, we can solve all of our problems by putting all of the blame on the Jewish community, on the homosexuals, on the vagrants, all of these people that he slaughtered in mass, they were putting all of the blame because All that really matters is that if society agrees that this is the problem and you can eliminate that problem, then society rebonds together. Um, Like I said just a minute ago, when you are with a group of people, how quickly do you disseminate just talking about other people, Uh, especially if possibly the group isn't very close. So when you're getting together with a group of people for maybe the first time, like you're working on a school project and you don't really know how to bond, nothing helps you bond better than when you are blaming or um, gossiping about someone that you all dislike. That is scapegoating, and that is also a part of mimesis because you desire to imitate each other and to be closer together. You desire that social cohesion. So now we see that in myth and in great tales of literature um, over and over and over again. And that is something that Girard noticed, and that became the foundation of pretty much his fame. Um, And what he got known for is this mimetic desire. And... Now, when he was reading the Bible, he realized that this is a deconstruction of mimesis, especially the story of Jesus, Um, because only in the Bible is God himself the scapegoat. Usually, in the Greek myths, there's a problem, and then Zeus descends and says, hey guys, I am here to solve your problem. That person is the problem. He is now going to Hades to be tortured for the rest of his life. But in the Bible, there is a problem, sin. And instead of God descending and saying, listen, guys, you need to do X, Y, Z. He said, no, I'm going to send my son um, and he is going to come down and he will be the scapegoat for all of humanity's problems, sin. So Jesus was the scapegoat, not the scapegoater. 
if that's not really a word, but it is now. Um, he's not the one who came and said, listen, do this, because they'd already been doing that. They had the sacrificial bulls, and it wasn't working. So Jesus came down himself as predetermined and predestined before time. He came down himself and was the scapegoat. And that is the revelation that René Girard had, that this is why the Bible is accurate, because only in the Bible is this deconstruction of this deep human psychological and societal uh, societal issue of mimetic desire and scapegoating only in the Bible is this deconstructed and Jesus took on all of the blame and he is the one who was the scapegoat he took on all of this and died on the cross and then there's another portion of it in Peter's denial that he also found extremely fascinating because Peter himself was not able to overcome this mimetic desire. He desired to be like the mob because of the pressures of the mob and the power that it holds over people to fit in to this cohesive society. So he cursed uh, and rejected Jesus to fit in with the mob because they were saying, hey, aren't you with Jesus? And he said, no, three times. Everybody knows the story of Peter's denial. And it was so fascinating to me because Peter, the rock, and if you notice in most translation, it actually calls him Simon Peter. So it gives his first name first. The name that uh, Jesus changed into Peter was afterwards. So you can see that in the Bible, it flip-flops between Simon and Peter until after uh, the Sermon on the Mount when it pretty much stuck with Peter. Um, but so we have Simon Peter who is this, supposed to be this rock and the foundation upon which God will build his church. And even he gives in to this base desire to be like the mob and fit into the mob and not to be special and excluded in the black sheep. So even he fell to this, but then God was able to redeem him out of that again. I'm going to give another example of a, a more recent application. Um, look no further than the movement to reform police. Uh, that has become a scapegoat for so many different uh, social movements. Uh, BLM, um, all they do is cry out to defund the police, but really the actual solution is giving police officers more training and de-escalation and, and all sorts of things. Um, and I can speak to this because I am in school for that and I already have a lot of certifications in that realm. Um, so, but people cry over and over again, even though they have no idea what they're actually talking about. They don't know the repercussions of defunding the police. Um, people have joined in this movement to cry out that policing is inherently a systemically racist thing, even though they don't really know what it is. I mean, look at all of the videos of these people who are usually actually predominantly white, um, calling people to raise a fist. There's videos of someone getting assaulted because they refused to raise their fist. Um, so that is a form of mimetic desire. Uh, this cohesion, this mob rule is, is part of the idea. Uh, that's what Rene Girard is talking about uh, when it comes to Peter's denial. This desire to be like the mob around him was so great that it overcame even one of the great original apostles. Um, it's a disturbing idea, but it, it is one that stands true. I mean, the craze over BLM was insane. And 
look at Chaz when it actually happened, when they got what they wanted and they were able to defund and actually remove the police from this uh, uh, Capitol Hill autonomous zone. Um, one of the things that's interesting that happened almost immediately is the people in that group uh, in Chaz decided that, you know what, guys, we need some people to actually ensure that we stay protected. So they actually instated their own form of police inside the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Um, but it originally, or eventually, I'm sorry, uh, broke up because uh, the police had to come in because there were some uh, very vicious assaults and they needed medical attention. I don't know for sure, but I believe someone got shot. Um, don't quote me on that one. Um, but regardless... Um, even though they were able to get the police to remove, um, almost immediately they actually instated a form of police themselves. Um, so this whole craze about BLM is an example of this mimetic desire and this scapegoating. These people had these things that they were angry about, um, justified and unjustified arguments with the police um, and with systemic racism in general they were mostly upset about racism in general and then they were able to find a manner to blame it all all racism comes from the criminal justice system specifically police officers they will be our scapegoat for this social movement to say guys if we can get rid of the police racism will be solved even though it is a completely inaccurate statement that was their scapegoat it was their monitor that they stood behind um, and they were able, this mob, this group of people were able to stir up large, large portions of Americans and this large groups in all of these different cities across the nation. And they were able to say, guys, if we just get rid of cops, then all of our problems will be solved. To me, that sounds pretty similar to what Adolf Hitler said. Guys, if we can just get rid of the Jews all of our problems will be solved. It's it's the same theory. It is all scapegoating. Um, some are worse than others, and I'm not trying to conflate the idea of the Holocaust in any way, shape, or form with uh, this move to defund the police. Not at all comparable. But the idea behind those actions remain the same. They are all mimetic desire all of this mob rule sense that comes from the desire to fit in people do crazy things in mobs which is why the framers of the constitution set it up the way that they have they set it up to defend against both a single tyrant and the tyrant of the many they called both of those um, verbatim in the uh, federalist papers um the tyranny of the mob and the tyranny of the tyrant, the tyranny of the one. So to kind of recap here a moment, we talked about um, mimesis as an art form, a representation of uh, humanity in art and literature. And then we talked about medic desire. Um, and that is also a representation of human nature, but it's more of the downsides of human nature. It is this inherent part within us that desires to have what somebody else wants to imitate their desire for something, but also to imitate each other in this social group and then to blame the problems on somebody else. That's called scapegoating. Uh, so there's this desire to see humanity in art, uh, which is why there are some problems with modern art, but then there's the desire to fit in together while blaming somebody else for your problems. And then you have this need when you see somebody else wanting something, 
um, you want that as well. So it's all a kind of representation of our psychology, of the individuals and the human condition. And then the solution to that, Rene Girard found out, is actually the Bible, because the Bible is the deconstruction of that, and the Spirit of God is what is able to help people overcome that. Um, so yeah, believe in God and all of your problems are solved. He is the ultimate scapegoat. He is the one that was meant to be, from the foundation of the world, the sacrificial lamb which sounds pretty similar to a scapegoat to me, and he had this idea before he even read the Bible. Um, so, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode today. Um, I certainly enjoyed it. The time flew by. I was only going to go for 20 minutes because the last one was kind of long, but it looks like I'm already at 30. So, guys, uh, go ahead and follow me on Instagram at jay. KUTZ03, where you can get updates for all of the stuff, and you can share my show on Instagram. Um, and please leave ratings and reviews uh, if you enjoyed what I am saying. So, hope you guys enjoyed the show, and I'll see you next week where I bring you some more food for thought.